So what we're going to do is this, is that we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 18. If you're new at our church, I do want to say welcome. We're going through a series in 1 and 2 Samuel called The Rise of the Kingdom. And uh, we're going to be spending a significant amount of time today focusing on the relationship between David and Saul. But we're going to be looking in chapter 18 through chapter 24. There's no way that I can read through even large portions of these chapters. And so what I'm going to do is this. I'm actually going to give us a 30,000-foot kind of overview of the seven chapters. And I'm going to go chapter by chapter and just pinpoint some of the basic events of what's happening. And in so doing, you'll have a feel for how the story is unfolding and what's happening and whatnot. Your homework is go home and read it for yourself. Okay? And we live in a very biblically illiterate culture. Don't be counted among the number who are illiterate when it comes to the Bible. You feel that? harsh, huh? In other words, read your Bible, uh, chapter 18 to 24, and I'm going to just do, a, again, a brief overview. Now, the point of the overview is just to give us a feel, but then what we're going to do is circle back around, and we're going to dive into some key texts that are going to help us understand the narrative of the story, but also do what's most important. We're going to see where Jesus is in the Old Testament. Remember Luke 24, Jesus said, the whole Old Testament is primarily about me, and so we want to see uh, where Jesus is. So hopefully you're ready. Let's go. Overview time. Chapter 18. It all starts here. What we see in chapter 18 is we are introduced to the deep friendship between David and Jonathan. Jonathan is King Saul's son. They have a deep connection. They are uh, really great friends. However, because of this great friendship in part, uh, Saul is very jealous of David, and what he does in chapter 18 is two different times he tries to kill David out of fit of a fit of envy and jealousy. He tries to hurl a spear at David and pin him to the wall, and then secondly, um, he finds Saul finds out that his daughter Michael loves David, and so he thinks that that's a great idea, not because David is great son-in-law material, but because that would afford him an opportunity to have David killed. And so he thought, well, you can marry my daughter, but here's what you need to do, David. Since you're a poor shepherd boy who has no resources, you can't pay the bride price for a princess. So I'm going to require of you 100 foreskins from the Philistines. And he was thinking, well, if, if David's going to go kill 100 Philistines and get their foreskins, that's going to be risky behavior, and he's probably going to die in the process. Bingo. So David goes out and uh, returns home with... 200 Philistine foreskins and wins the girl. So there's that. Chapter 19. Once again, Saul tries to kill David by pinning him to the wall with a spear. However, Jonathan, the son of Saul, tries to defend David, but it falls on deaf ears, and Saul is not hearing any of it. Instead, what Saul does is send an envoy of watchmen to David's house at night with the intention of in the morning when David leaves his house, I want you to strike him and kill him. However, Michael, uh, David's new wife and the daughter of Saul, finds out about this and helps David escape out of a window. And so now David is on the run. Chapter 20. Now David comes to Saul, uh, Jonathan and says, dude, why is your dad trying to kill me all the time? Like, what's up with that? Jonathan says, I don't, I don't think he wants to kill you, seriously. I, I just think he's mad at you. And so they come up with a plan to find out whether or not da uh, David truly is at risk, whether or not Saul truly wants to kill him. So there's this feast that is about to happen. It's a two-day-long feast. David and Jonathan decide that David will not participate in the feast. And then Saul will recognize David's absence and then inquire, where's David? And at that point, Jonathan would fill in, uh, the blanks until Saul, actually David went home to Bethlehem to be with his family. And then depending on how Saul reacts, we'll know whether or not he intends to kill David. Well, Saul reacts. After the two days, he basically says, I hate David. I want to kill him. Can you bring him to me? And so Jonathan runs out to the field where David was hiding and says, well, it's true. My dad wants to kill you. You got to go. And so they embrace one another. Jonathan blesses David and then sends him on the way. So David is now on the run. He's a fugitive, wanted by Saul. Not just wanted to be arrested, but wanted in order to be killed. David goes to a place called Nob in chapter 21, where he meets a priest named Ahimelech. He goes into uh, where the priest is serving, and he asks for food. Since he's on the run, he left in haste. 
does not have any weapons or warfare, nor does he have any supplies or food. So he asks for food. Ahimelech gives him some food, um, the stale holy bread, so to speak. On the Sabbath day, they took out the holy bread and they replaced it with fresh bread. And so David and the people who are with him get the holy bread, the stale holy bread. Then David says, hey, by the way, do you have any weapons or warfare? And Ahimelech says, we don't have anything except for this one thing. We have the sword of Goliath who you, who you killed. And David's like, yeah, that'll work. That'll work. So David straps on the sword of Goliath, and he heads out, ironically, to the land of the Philistines. He heads to a city called Gath. What's interesting and ironic about the city of Gath is that is the hometown of Goliath. I don't know what David was thinking. So he comes riding in, I don't know, on his horse. I just picture this, on his horse with Goliath's sword. And everyone's like, hey, that's the dude that killed Goliath. Let's get him. And so they actually apprehend David. And when he was in custody with the Philistines, he pretended to be insane, foaming at the mouth, scratching on the doors. And the king goes, dude, I don't need any more crazy people. I have enough. Let's get rid of this guy. And so David leaves. Chapter 22. When David leaves Gath, he calls to himself a whole host of people in a place called the Cave of Agilum. And there he calls the weak and the infirmed and the sick to himself, and he becomes their leader. And uh, Saul finds out that, uh, that David had visited Ahimelech in Nob. And so David, or excuse me, Saul asks Ahimelech to come to him and to give an account of what happened. And so Saul uh, figures, you know what, uh, I need to question this man. And so he questions him. Saul's paranoia is reaching absolute astronomical heights, and he finds out Ahimelech supported David, and so he orders Ahimelech to be killed and all the priests who served with him. However, the Israelites who are standing there with Saul look at one another and say, I'm not killing no priest. You kidding me? Now, Saul turns to a man named Doeg. He's an Edomite, which means he's an enemy of Israel. And he turns to Doeg and he says, you kill him. Now, what's interesting is Doeg... When David was in uh, the temple uh, with Ahimelech, he was lurking in the shadows and watching David when he got the bread and the sword, and he was the informant on how Saul came to find out that David was a knob in the first place. And so now Doeg says, gladly. So he takes out a sword and hacks to pieces all of the priests and, and the entire city of Nob. Horrible situation. Then one of the, it comes out that, uh, it turns out one of the sons of Ahimelech escapes. His name is Abiathar. He comes to David and says, David, you'll never believe this, but Saul has killed my father and all the priests in Nob. David recognizes that it was his fault of why the priests were killed. And so he tells Abiathar, okay, you'll be safe with me now. And so he takes the man into his company and keeps him and preserves him. Chapter 23. The city of Keilah, which is in Judah, is attacked by the Philistines. David gets wind about it and inquires of the Lord, should I go to Keilah and defend my people and to deliver them from the hand of the, from the Philistines? And God says, yes, you should. So David goes there and he liberates the city and the people rejoice and they repay him by sending messengers to Saul and saying, hey, by the way, David's in our city. You should come get him. So David sees this and thinks, my goodness, I just liberated you from the Philistines and now you're... You're selling me out. And so he's on the run once again. He goes into the wilderness called Ziph. And as he's hiding in the wilderness with no home and no place to go, and he's abandoned and being turned over by everybody, and he has no safety, it turns out that the Ziphites who live in the wilderness of Ziph find out that he's David. And so what do they do? They send messengers to Saul and go, by the way, David's in our country now. You should come kill him. And so there comes Saul with his army coming in chapter 23 pursuing David up and down all around in the wilderness until they are in close proximity, kind of like in, where you can just sense each other's presence that close. And then all of a sudden, when you think David is about to be captured and killed by Saul, messengers come into Saul and say, the Philistines have attacked the land. We need to go back. So Saul abandons the pursuit of David, heads back to the land of Israel and defends the country against the Philistines. Chapter 24. Saul returns and chases David. David's in a cave hiding with his men, now 600. Saul goes into a cave to relieve himself, deep in this cave. David's back in the shadows. He recognizes Saul. He walks out, cuts off the corner of Saul's robe. Saul, after finishing his business, heads back out to his army. David comes out of the cave and says, my Lord, my king, I could have killed you today, but I didn't. I saved you. 
And basically David said, I'm nobody. Why do you keep trying to kill me? I'm not going to lay a hand on you. And then Saul recognizes David's righteousness and innocence and says, now today I realize you will be the rightful king and I am the wicked one. End of story. That's so good. All right. So with <laughs> Yes, I practiced that. <laughs> Truth be told. Well, now, having got an overview, I want to circle back and then highlight a couple of significant things in this story that will not only help us to understand the narrative of the story, but it's going to give us a beautiful glimpse of Jesus. And so let's pray and ask the Lord to bless us. God, would you do exactly what we ask in that you would bless us with yourself? God, we know that this book that we're reading is no mere book. This is your revealed word. By it, we know that we are refreshed and we are revived and we are restored. By it, we have a revelation of all that you are and all that you've done for us. So God, I pray that our time together as a church would be fruitful because we have met with you and that we have encountered you and that you have been pleased to reveal yourself to us through this book. So God, grant us all that we need to see you in your majesty and glory and beauty. Grant us the Holy Spirit and prepare our hearts and minds and eyes to see and hear and believe everything we have laid before us in your word. So God, would you do that for us, we pray. So you belongs to glory forever and ever. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so now let's come back. Let's circle back. We'll start in chapter 18. We understand that the relationship between Saul and David is, is one that is tense. Um, Saul wants to kill David, and the question is why. Why does Saul want to kill David so badly? And the answer is because Saul is insanely jealous. He's insanely jealous. Why in the world is Saul so jealous? Good question. I'm glad you asked. We'll start in chapter 18. And what we're going to see is you have to remember Jonathan, who is the son of Saul, he is the rightful heir of the king. So he will one day, naturally speaking, take over. And the kingdom of Israel will become his kingdom. So he's the prince. He's the crowned prince. So keep that in the back of your mind as we read this. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, that's David speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Now, you, you may not understand the significance of what's happening here, but basically this, Jonathan, who is the rightful heir of the throne, who is naturally speaking the one to inherit the kingdom, this prince, crowned prince, is now derobing, taking off his belt, giving his armor and his sword to another man. In other, in other words, he is relinquishing all of the regalia that outwardly signifies that he is the prince and will one day be the king. And he is relinquishing it, giving it to David, because Jonathan recognizes the kingdom is going to be stripped from my dad and therefore from me, and it's going to be given to a better man, and that better man is David. And so I am this day asserting my allegiance to you, David, by giving you all of the crowned prince regalia. I am for you. You are God's chosen man. Beautiful. Verse 5. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. So right from the beginning, we see in verse 1 that Jonathan loved David. Jonathan was for David. Jonathan recognized that David was God's man to lead as king. And another thing we see is that the people of Israel, they love David as well. Look at this in verse 6 through 9. As they were coming home from their warfare, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry. 
And this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. I love that phrase, I, David, because in our family, whenever we say ludicrous things that are just ridiculous, like, for instance, I hate the Dodgers. And so when the Dodgers won, um, I, and I don't like the Red Sox, and so I have no reason to watch the World Series. And so I turn to my kids and I go, I'm not watching the World Series this year. I protest. And my kids, what did they do? They fish-eyed me. And in our family, that's what we call when you look out of the side of your head, yeah, <laughs> right. And so that's Saul. He's fish-eyeing David. He's just looking at David everywhere he's going with it out of the corner of his eye, just kind of keeping an eye on him. I don't trust you. You, uh, you know what I'm talking about. You do that in your families. And then we jump down to verse 16. And it says, but all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. Okay, so put yourself in Saul's shoes. Your own son, the crown prince of Israel, loves David. You come home and all the women are dancing and singing. Because they love David. Huh. And then Michael, your own daughter, verse 20. Now Saul's daughter, Michael, loved David. All right. What's going on here? If you are Saul, do you, do you see what's happening? Not only in chapter 15 did God say that you are no longer going to be the king, but now all of a sudden the, your crowned prince, who is your very own flesh and blood son, loves David, who is the one who's going to take your throne. Not only that, but the people, they love David. Not only that, but your own daughter loves David. So why is Saul so jealous? It's because everyone loves the other people and not him. Now, this is easy for us to understand because you and I oftentimes can relate to Saul big time with this. Saul's reputation is being threatened. He once was so handsome and powerful and liked by everyone. And now David is that guy. So this is a really deadly combination for Saul's soul. You see, what's happening is Saul's idolatry, the idolatry of control, this is my kingdom. The idolatry of reputation. Why do they sing about his ten thousands and, not, and only my thousands? You're the king, for goodness sake. Grow up. All right. And not only that, but the idolatry of being liked by everyone. I just want people to like me. All of a sudden, Saul is facing the reality that all the idols he set up in his life, that of control and reputation and being liked by other people, are now crumbling. Now where will he find his identity and self-worth? To whom will he turn now for appreciation and self-esteem? Well, Saul decides, if David is the reason why I feel this way, then I should do something about David. Namely, kill him. So you and I relate to this because when people accuse us or make false accusations about us or say things about us which might question our character or reputation or you come to find out that people don't like us as much as we think they liked us, what is our response? A lot of times it's, I'm going to get even. I'm going to prove myself. I'm going to uphold my reputation by destroying their reputation. Do you see how that works? We relate to Saul, do we not? So here's what he decides to do. David's playing his harp, trying to soothe Saul's mind. And then Saul, with a spear in his hand, goes, oh, I got a good idea. And tries to pin David to the wall. And David just is elusive, like the Matrix. And so he gets out of the way. <laughs> Saul does that not only once, but twice. Chapter 18, verse 11. Chapter 19, verse 10. Saul knows that David is destined to be king. Saul knows that because Samuel told him in chapter 15, verse 28, that the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. So Saul knows he's losing control. He's losing the affection, the reputation. He's losing his likability. And therefore, he must kill David. For many of us, we understand exactly how Saul feels. 
When we are threatened, especially our idols of control or our idols of our reputation or the idolatry of being liked by others and having a good opinion in other people's minds about ourselves, we respond just like Saul. We are demanding. If we are attacked, we attack back. If we are accused of something, we defend ourselves. We get vengeance. We get even. If others around us receive the praise that we think is due to us, we do not rejoice with them. We resent them. When someone at work, somebody gets the recognition that you think you deserve, how do you feel in that moment? Why them and not me? Why them and not me? And how do we respond? I know when we read the Bible, a lot of times we as Christians love to put ourselves as the hero. So when you read David and Goliath, you're like, oh, I'm David. I'm David. Yeah, clearly. I just need to, I just need to you know, find my enemy, my giant, and overcome him. Fear of heights? That's okay. I'll overcome it. Fear of whatever? I'll overcome it. There's whole movies in the Christian subculture built on this stuff. But the reality is, you're not David. You don't have the power, authority, or ability to overcome evil and to overcome Satan himself and stand against the enemies of God. So where do we fit in the story of, of David and Goliath? Easy. We are the trembling crowd standing off to the side going, I don't know what to do. <laughs> That's you and I. And you know who David is? Jesus. Don't ever put yourself in place of Jesus. Let Jesus rule and reign and have all authority and let us be honest about who we really are. We are weak and trembling and fearful people who are powerless to overcome what is against us in this life. And so when we look at, look at this and we go, oh, clearly I'm David. I'm the, one, I'm the one that's getting hurt. No, you're probably Saul. You're the one trying to kill your neighbor, at least their reputation, in order to defend yourself. You tracking with me, church? Yeah. That stinks. <laughs> I hate when God shows me my sin. But I love it at the same time because I know whenever I see my sin, I know grace is not far behind. And so now what we're going to turn is we're going to look at David's life and we're going to ask ourselves the question, well, what happens to David from this point forward when everyone, when, when Saul especially is out to get him? And in fact, when <laughs> Saul wants to kill David... By sending the watchman to his house late at night so that in the morning when he wakes up, he would be killed. What's going to happen to David? Well, Michael, his wife, saves him, rescues him, sends him out through a window, making sure that he doesn't die. And from that point forward, chapter 19, verse 11, when David escapes, from that point forward, the next six chapters are about David's suffering. And why does David suffer? Because God is preparing him to lead his people. And that reminds us, brothers and sisters, that we all, whether or not you want to acknowledge it, but you really should because it's healthy for you, we live in a fallen and broken world in which we will suffer. But we ought never to waste our suffering. But let us suffer well. How do we do that? That's what, that's what this is here for, to teach us how to suffer well. So what do you think David was experiencing when he went to bed that night and his wife goes, <clears throat> so uh, some people are outside going to kill you tonight, um, so you need to leave. He's thinking, are you kidding me? I just got in bed. Yeah, yeah, we, we got to get you out the window. We got to go. You can't stay here. What do you think's happening through David's mind and heart? His father-in-law wants him dead. Well, we don't have to guess because David wrote a psalm about it. Psalm 59. Let's read it. Verse 1. David writes, Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil and save me from bloodthirsty men. For behold, they lie in wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me. For no transgression of sin, or mine, a sin of mine, O Lord, and no fault of mine... They run and make ready. Awake, come to meet me and see. 
It's David's heart crying out, Lord, I'm innocent in this matter. I have no idea why these people want to kill me. I didn't do anything. But there they are outside my house waiting to destroy me. God, come and see what's happening to me. I love that. David does not hide how life is so painful. And then what does he do? Verse 16. But I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. For you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. Oh, my strength. I will sing praises to you. For you, oh God, are my fortress and the God who shows me steadfast love. Do you see what David does? He does not minimize his pain and his emotional and psychological suffering. He deals with it not by turning inwardly. My life is hard. I just got to turn inwardly, and I need to muster up the power and strength to overcome it. I'm an overcomer. That's not what he does. What David does is he turns his gaze from inward to outward and says, Oh, God, this pain is strong, but you are stronger. And because of your steadfast love, you will sustain me. You are my fortress. You are my refuge. You are my stronghold. You are my everything. You see, that's why we don't suffer well today. It's because we're always told to look inwardly. You can't do it. No, you can't. The forces of evil and darkness and death are too strong for you. But you know what? God in Christ Jesus is stronger than them. So he turns and he proclaims, God is our fortress. God is our strength. God is our steadfast love. God is our refuge. And brothers and sisters, what this means is this momentary pain that David is experiencing is also an opportunity for him to revel in the steadfast love of God. You think of that when you suffer? Oh, what what love I'm about to experience because of this suffering. You approach life like that? You see, there is a promise for us as Christians today. The promise is because of Jesus, a day is coming when there will be no more pain, no more suffering, and no more tears, for there will be no more death. And in that day, we will be finally and fully delivered from all pain and suffering, free to experience the fullness of God's love for us in Christ Jesus. And that's called the new creation. But brothers and sisters, the Bible nowhere promises that life in this one. We cannot demand of this life what only the next life promises. David suffers because he has no home. He has no one to turn to. In fact, when he finds out that Saul truly wants to kill him, we read in verse 42 that Jonathan prays with him, blesses him, and then it says, Jonathan returns to his house, but David was forced to depart. He's on the run. He's a fugitive, nowhere to lay his head, which reminds us of what Jesus said in Matthew 8:20, that foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man is, has nowhere to lay his head. Brothers and sisters, as Christians, you need to realize the Bible clearly demonstrates for us the reality that this world is not our home. We are sojourners and exiles and aliens in this world because our citizenship is in another place. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from heaven we await our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power in which he subjects all things to himself, Philippians 3, 20 and 21. We have to realize that this is not our home, and so therefore we cannot demand that this world be comfortable as the next world is going to be. Do you see that? So then when, what do we learn from this? Well, if David is a type of Christ, which means he foreshadows Jesus, then Saul is a type of the Antichrist, or he foreshadows the world. So as Saul seeks to kill and destroy David, so too the world, Satan, and his minions seek to kill and destroy Jesus and all who follow him. This is not our home. If the world hates Jesus, it will hate us too. Why? Because we are not greater than our master. And if he suffers, we will too. So you got to get a new master if you don't want to suffer. 
And if you get a new master, you will suffer torment forever. So David flees to Gath by the way of Nob. He goes to Ahimelech. He gets the sword of Goliath. He goes to um, the city of Gath and he pretends to be insane because he knows that he's now in bondage. And he's, so what, he suffers once again on the run. How does he feel and think? Well, I'm glad you asked. David wrote a psalm about it. He wrote it in Psalm 56, verses 1 through 4, where the title of the psalm says, it's when the Philistines seized him in Gath. And, and David writes, be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me all day long. An attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. Many of us as Christians can feel that way. But we ought never to demand, even though we live in America, you can't ever demand that America be the new creation. It is not. And so what, what we see in David is this pleading with God, God, these people are against me, they hate me. How does he respond? Verse 3. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? The world is against me, but I fear not the world because I fear God. That's a right disposition. That's what Matthew 10, 28 says, where Jesus says, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who, who can destroy both soul and body in hell. The reality is, brothers and sisters, many people, including many people who are probably here today, fear more the opinion of man than they do the holiness of God. And so they fear what man could do to them in their bodies without giving proper recognition to what God can do in heaven and hell. And so Jesus says, you are never to fear man above the fear of God. God is holy and he is just. And we have been paralyzed at times by the fear of other people and their opinions of us, have we not? So, dear Christians, here's what I, I exhort you. Do not fear this world, nor the death and the ridicule and the slander that it seeks to intimidate us by, but instead put your trust in God and the promise of his word. For the same grace that will save you from the wrath of God is the same grace that will deliver you from the fear of man. God's grace is sufficient. God will do it. Trust him. His grace is enough. And then remember Doeg, the Edomite, who slayed all the priests, who was lurking in the shadows, who ratted David out? What would you do in that instance if you found out that it was Doeg who ratted you out and killed all those people? Well, we don't have to guess what David did. He wrote a psalm about it, Psalm 52. The title reads, When Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. Verse 1. David writes, Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. In other words, you boast as though you are mighty, and yet it is God's steadfast love which is mightier. Verse 2. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor. Your work, you are a worker of deceit. Your, you love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right, Selah, verse 8. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name for it is good in the presence of the godly. David does not seek revenge. But instead, in the midst of his suffering at the hands of this particular individual, David acknowledges his pain and then turns to trust God and his unfailing love. You will not abandon me in the midst of my pain and suffering, God. You love me. He says, I am like a green olive shoot. In other words, I'm bendable, but I won't break. And you've seen that before with the tender shoot. If you take it and you bend it, we are bent, but we are not broken. So the people of, remember that, the next section is the people of Keilah. 
They tell Saul about the whereabouts of David. And so he has to go into the wilderness of Ziph. And then he finds out the Ziphites sell him out to, to Saul. So where is he going to go? He can't go home. He can't go to the Philistines. He can't go to Judah. He can't go to Keilah. He can't go to the wilderness. Where can he go? What's he feeling? What's he thinking? I'm glad you asked. David wrote a psalm about it. <laughs> psalm 54. When the Ziphites went and told Saul, is not David hiding among us? The title reads. Verse 1, O oh God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. O oh God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. Selah. Verse 4. But behold. I don't know about you, but I think in pictures. And so when I picture David writing this as he's just wandering and fearing his life. I just picture this cloud of darkness just surrounding David. And it's just the, the doom and gloom of his life. And then all of a sudden, it seems as if the clouds and the fog begin to part. And as they begin to part and separate, the darkness begins to be vanquished. And then the bright light of the sun now penetrates. And as he looks up, he begins to see it clearly. Can you see it? And then he says, behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. And in that moment, the clouds and what the gloomy darkness is totally vanquished in the light of the truth that God is our helper. He's the one that upholds my life. Brothers and sisters, when ruthless people seek to take our lives, and maybe it's not physically, but it's our reputations, we have to realize that it is God who upholds our life. And David simply entrusts himself to a holy and faithful God and says, God, I will trust your word in the midst of this. You will not abandon me. We learn a lot about Jesus from this. If you have ever learned that Christianity is about being comfortable, easy, blessed, prosperous, pain-free, and sufferingless, somebody has lied to you. We have never been promised in this life the things that only the next life can provide. There is coming a day, brothers and sisters, where we will be blessed beyond words. We will be prosperous beyond measure. We will be joyously pain-free without suffering, without death. And we will be perpetually at rest. But that day is when Jesus returns and ushers in the new creation. That day is not today, nor tomorrow, more than likely. But it's when Jesus returns. What are we promised in the meantime? We are promised hardships, tribulations, and suffering. Why? Because the world hates us. Because it hates Jesus. And if he suffered, so will we. There's a great comfort, however, and solace and grace that is offered to us in the midst of our pain and suffering and tribulations. David foreshadows Jesus, and in David's suffering, we see Jesus' suffering, but we also can recognize our own suffering. So here's what I want to do. I know that people who are here, you either are suffering or you know someone who is suffering, and I'm not defining what I mean by suffering because I simply means it's, I mean it to mean the experience of life the way it's not supposed to be. So read Genesis 1 and 2. And whatever that is, no shame, no guilt, no pain, no suffering, no tears, no violence, no exploitation, no rape, no genocide, none of that. That's what I mean. If you experience whatever is not Genesis 1 and 2, you suffer. And how do we suffer well? Well, we look to Jesus. Because Jesus, as our king, knows what it's like to be weak and to suffer. So let's cast our gaze upon Jesus now. Hear these words, church. Hebrews 2, verse 10. For it was fitting that he for whom 
and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. You see, you see what he said? It's fitting that the Son of God suffers. Why? Verse 14, since therefore the children, you and I, share in flesh and blood, he, Jesus himself, likewise partook of the same thing, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus came, Son of God, God in human flesh, intentionally to die for sinners so that sinners would be free from the bondage and the power of Satan and the fear of death, so that you can face death in the face and say, I don't care if my body wastes away and dies, I'm getting a new one. There's an upgrade coming. And so because Jesus suffered, we are free to not live in fear at what the world may do to us because we know that even though the world may take our body, we're getting a new one. And the world cannot take our soul. And Jesus, when he was tempted, he was without sin. You see, when he suffered, he was also tempted, but in the midst of his suffering and temptation, he didn't sin. You and I are prone to sin through temptation when we suffer. What do I mean? One of the things we notice about David is that in the midst of his suffering, he never once blamed God. Nor do we ever read that David felt entitled to an easy, comfortable life because he was the God-ordained, anointed heir of the throne of Israel. Do you notice that? You never once see David shake his fist into the skies and say, why are you doing this to me? I'm supposed to be the king. And yet what you hear on the lips of these false teachers and prosperity, gospel-preaching, heretical, nonsensical teachers that you see on TV and their multitude of books and being promulgated, this nonsense all online, is this. You have a birthright. You have a birthright. You're a son and daughter. You need to claim your birthright and be prosperous. And I would say, what in the world are you saying? Are you telling me? That what we need to do in the midst of our suffering is to shake our fist at God and demand our birthright? Demand that he give us in this life what he promised in the next? Have you not read the parable of the prodigal son? That was the younger son who did that. So what do we do? We have to remember, brothers and sisters, we live in an unjust and unfair world. And that's not God's fault. That's our fault. We forget that in this world it's fallen, it's broken, it's full of sin. And we also forget that many of the contributors to this sin and brokenness and fallenness are sitting in these pews. We are the problem. And so in the midst of this suffering, in the midst of all of this, we oftentimes sin because we shake our fists at God and say, God, you owe me. I deserve better than this. I have rights. I'm entitled to a better life now. No, church. May we never fall into the temptation to speak such blasphemous nonsense. Because if we take inventory of our lives, we will conclude without a shadow of a doubt what we deserve is precisely nothing but death. For we have rebelled against God. We have hated God. We live in selfishness. We abuse and manipulate and extort and all kinds of stuff, the people around us, even our loved ones in our own home, do we not? And in light of that, how can we shake our fist at God and say, you owe me? I yelled at my wife, you owe me a better life. No, 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 we don't deserve anything but death. We claim we are innocent, but we are guilty. But, you feel the bad news right now? That's why no one's moving right now. Don't ignore that. Don't check your phone right now because that's what we're tempted to do. I want to distract myself. I feel uncomfortable. I'm having to talk to myself right now. I don't like that. Distract me, world. But here's the reality, brothers and sisters. We have Jesus. Though we are guilty, 
and we are not innocent. Jesus came to earth to be the innocent person that we could not be. And so through his death and through his resurrection, he did all that is necessary to grant us, to give us, and to offer us the very life we are demanding of God but cannot receive through demanding it. We receive it through humble repentance that I can't do this myself. I need you, God. Do this for me. So we read this in Hebrews 4.14. Since we have a, high, a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted just as we are and yet was without sin. So let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Did you hear it? We as Christians have full confidence to approach the throne of grace because in that moment of our desperate and deep need, we have a sympathetic high priest who relates to us because he knows exactly what it's like to suffer and be tempted, and yet he never gave in when we do. And so we can confidently draw near to God and receive the supply of grace and mercy because of the finished work of Jesus. So, brothers and sisters, this is quite amazing. In the midst of your suffering, God has not abandoned you. God is showing you his steadfast love to you and allowing you to experience what it's like to live like Jesus. Man, that's why we should never pray. God, I don't, I don't want suffering. Because the more that we pray suffering away, the more that we reject the blessing of God's love. So when you suffer, my question is this, when you're in the midst of suffering, cancer, the death of someone you know, a lost job, in the midst of that, are you looking at your suffering thinking, oh my goodness, God, this is going to be a moment in which you're going to sustain me by your steadfast love. Do it. We, of all people on the face of the earth as Christians, are the only people that can do that in the face of suffering. Because Jesus is enough for us. Whew. Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. Hebrews 5, 7, and 8. We do not want to waste our suffering. Because Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered, we too can learn through suffering. Here's what it says. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son... He learned obedience through what he suffered. Let me just say it like this. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed and cried and sweat drops of blood in anguish for his death. And it says in this verse that the Father heard him. But when we read the story, we realize Jesus still got spiked to a cross. How exactly did the Father hear him? The Father heard the prayers of Jesus and did not deliver him by removing him from suffering. But the Father heard his prayers and delivered him by supplying him with the strength and grace and mercy that he needed to endure the suffering. So that Hebrews 12.1 says this, for the, for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross. Brothers and sisters, I don't know what your cross is or what your suffering is, but if you will cry and, and pray and, and beg God in the midst of your suffering like David did and speak those truths of God's unfailing love, God probably won't deliver you from your suffering, but he will, according to his word, sustain you by his grace and his mercy so that you can endure the suffering. For me, that is a great encouragement, but I have to finish on this not-so-encouraging words. And then I gave encouraging again. You see how this works, ebbs and flows. All who desire to live a godly life will suffer. 2 Timothy chapter 10, verse 12 says this. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you want to live like Jesus, you'll probably be treated like Jesus, and the world hated Jesus, and therefore the world hates you. Expect that. 
In fact, when Paul in, in verses 10 and 11 in that passage was talking about his persecutions in Antioch, Lystra, and Iconium, we read about that in Acts 14. And, and it, what's interesting is Paul talks about how God delivered him from and rescued him from that suffering. And yet when you read Acts 14, you don't read of anything of him escaping suffering. You read of him being stoned and beaten and left for dead. And then so Paul circles back around to those very same cities where he was beaten and stoned and left for dead. And it says that they were strengthening the souls of the disciples and encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. You see that? Encouraging the Christians. I'm encouraging you. Smile on your face. Be happy. Tribulations await. You don't see that on Thomas Kincaid paintings, do you? And yet that is what is encouraging to us somehow. John 16, verse 33, where Jesus says, in me... You have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I've overcome the world. And so we read in 2 Corinthians 4, we do not lose heart. Why? Because though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Brothers and sisters, we are going to suffer. Quit lying to yourself if you think you're not. Jesus promised it. It's going to be an encouragement because in the midst of our suffering, God will demonstrate his love and he will supply you with grace and mercy in order to be strengthened and to sustain and persevere the suffering so you can suffer well and not blaspheme God by claiming it's God's fault that we suffer. So as Christians, listen to these words as we close because I'm way over time and I apologize. Chapter 5, verse 10 and 11 of 1 Peter. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ Jesus will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So brothers and sisters, whatever you are experiencing by way of suffering, do not lose heart. Do not lose your confidence. God has not abandoned you. He is with you in his suffering. And he has demonstrated it in the person of Jesus. So let us pray and cry out for the mercy and grace that God promised he will provide. So God, would you do that for us? Thank you for your word. Thank you for how it sustains us. And I pray, God, as we go, that you would help us to suffer well. We know that this world hates us. We know that our enemy roams around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So, God, preserve us, I pray. Watch over us. Deliver us by granting us strength and grace and mercy in our time of need. So, God, thank you for your word and the sustaining power it has for us. Bless us now, we pray in Jesus' name.